We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So, your recommended weekly allowance of uh, wisdom and yearning, yearning, learning, and turning, yearning, an hour of praying and recognizing with gratitude the remarkable world around us, yearning to be fully in radical amazement, as Heschel coined the term radical amazement for the world. Could we turn that one off? I know. Thanks. Um, Radical amazing, radical gratitude, radical presencing. That's the first hour of our morning service. And now the next 45 minutes, a little bit less than that, about a half hour of learning, a little bit of learning to bring us to the week. And I also say, and I have realized um, over the last 10 years, that too often in liberal Jewish communities we live from paycheck to paycheck. We live from Shabbat to Shabbat. And we need more. We need more in the week. So um, talk about that, how we can extend Shabbat into the week and learning and yearning and turning into the week. But for now, from yearning to learning, I have the, um, the privilege, the honor, and with trepidation a bit to read this morning and to offer this morning the, the parsha called Sota. If you would open your Chumashim, your Bible, to page 796. 796. <clears throat> the reading this morning The reading this morning will pick up on page 797 with verse 16. But the entirety of the of the episode or of this piece of the Torah begins at page 796. Um, I say with trepidation, honor and privilege, of course, it's obvious, but trepidation because <clears throat> when I looked to see what part of the Torah service this morning we would be reading, because we don't read the full Torah service at Romamu, we read a third, and recently we read a third of a third, so a ninth of the actual full portion is what we read here at Romamu, and we don't choose it, um, we, we choose it by what we read last year, we want to cover the full Torah um, every three years or now it'll be probably every nine years, but the portion that I found we were reading this morning is the portion dealing with the adulteress or the suspected adulteress, a woman who is suspected by her husband of having committed adultery. And thankfully, we spent an hour this morning looking at this together in our open book. And to kind of condense what we said in the open book, for those who don't know about this, this is your first time hearing that there is such a portion in the Torah, it's not the best Torah uh, foot forward, as it were. It's not the kind of Torah that you would say, Oh, welcome to the land of Torah. Here, pull up a seat. Let us tell you about this piece of Torah. Um, also, given the headlines that are making their way every single day now, I think 71 men have been accused of inappropriate behavior in the aftermath of Harvey Weinstein, who, of course, was arrested yesterday. 
as a cisgendered white dude standing here in front of all of you and talking about a part of the Torah where a man is enabled or given the permission to come and lay claim against his wife. Uh, it's a little bit, uh, I'm like, okay. All right, Ingber, navigate this well, okay? But as someone who loves Torah, in many ways, I want to say this is no different for me personally than reading any other part of Torah that I struggle with and that I try to make in some way relevant to my life, some way connected to my inner life, some way connected to this community and to the larger and broader community. So that being said, let's look at this reading. Page 796. The more God says to Moses, saying, Any man whose wife has gone astray and broken faith with him, she said, just to euphemistically here, there's been a relationship with another man, she has not been she was not forced and there were no witnesses and it is a hidden matter a spirit of jealousy comes over him has jealousy for his wife she has she has become impure but or in a scenario where she is not guilty but he's just jealous and suspicious. In other words, covering all of our bases. The man will bring his wife to the Kohen, to the priest. There will be an offering, a barley offering. And this is called a barley offering that is a jealousy offering. It is an offering of remembrance and the reminder or the recalling of iniquity or wrongdoing. What then ensues in what we will actually be reading, where we'll pick up this, the reading of the tribes, verse 16, the actual right, the R-I-T, the right of the sota, the suspected adulteress. The Kohen, the priest, will bring the, the woman before the altar, and there will be a potion made. Some potion it's called mayim hamarim hamararim. Mayim, this water that is marim, bitter, cursed waters or bitter waters upon which an incantation or a spell will be induced this potion will be given to the suspected adulteress and upon which time the potion the Torah tells us will prove whether she's innocent or guilty if she is innocent she will be it'll be a fertility potion she will be then be given a reward she'll be able to have children and if she's guilty her belly will distend and she will be punished and of course it is a capital punishment okay great so patriarchal yes maybe misogynist although that might be a term retrofitted onto a patriarchal culture misogynist but seems to be deeply problematic non-egalitarian the rabbis have a problem with this as many of us also do they soften it. They say that the man is also guilty or is being tried. According to the rabbis in the Talmud, if the man gives a potion to his wife and he himself is guilty of the very thing that he is claiming about his wife, he too will be outed. It won't go without 
being outed. But let's for a moment, if we could, just for a moment, let's name all of the things about this that are painful. Someone came in to me after the morning's reading and said, I don't like, as a woman who's a member of this community, I love her dearly, she said, I don't think you should be so politically correct. It's a great, interesting piece of Torah. Don't worry, she said. And I said to her, why do you think I'm being politically correct? I have a problem with it too. Why shouldn't I have a problem? It's very problematic. It's deeply, deeply troubling. I can't imagine, I said to her, I mean, I can imagine as a feminist myself reading it, I'm disgusted by it, but I can't imagine my wife or anyone else who can imagine themselves in this scenario. And there are parts of the Torah, like the part of the Torah that says that a rebellious child, if he rebels, should also have capital punishment. And we say, oh, okay, that didn't happen. I would never do that with my kid. Of course, the problem with this is that the vestiges of this text are very much available today. We, as a culture, have evolved to the point where some of the things the Torah says about children are clearly, clearly wrong, and yet it took till this year for the Me Too movement to arise. So that's, of course, very problematic. Be that as it may, slavery has not yet been eradicated in the world. There are more slaves today than at any other point in history, and yet the Torah seems to condone slavery. There are many things. So that if we could take all of that and say, yes, 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 and put it over here in the parking lot, and now I want to ask you to enter into this text with me and say, what is the text on the deeper structural level trying to address? What structure is it trying to put forth to address that problem? And how might we imagine something like this for ourselves? What is needed? What is the Torah's wisdom here being called forth? So, yes, Rabbi. So in a tribal culture, so not everybody can hear you, so I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, just because I'm mic'd and you're not. I wish I could give you. Okay. But can I, can I repeat? Can everybody hear? No. What do you do? Okay, so Rabbi, so Rabbi, Rabbi Judith is just raising this. Can I, can I paraphrase and share it with Because not everybody's hearing. No, no, you, I, I just feel like as an interpreter or like I have to, I can't remember everything you're saying. So you said it, there, it still exists today. There are places, and you named an example of, of, of a friend who was in Greek who, who actually, the issue of a jealous husband and this tribal, this tribal vendetta, the tribal pride killings, whatever it might be, it still exists today. And you said that underneath it all, first of all, you told us that you were working with homebound people yesterday and that they found this an enlivening thing to talk about, which I loved. And then you said that for you, you think that the rabbis are fundamentally working with what do you do with a jealous husband? What do you do with jealousy, possessiveness? Um, and this is a, a kind of a, a desire to meet that challenge without killing without resorting to killing. In other words, instead of you taking matters or law into your own hands, this was the Torah's, in its own period, trying to be progressive about creating greater harmony between, between married couples. There was no such real thing called marriage, but between these relationships. Uh, it's non-egalitarian, okay, but in the deeper structure is how do we create harmonious relations? Are there rituals, rights for working these things out? Okay, that's your Torah for this morning. Anyone else want to jump in? Livia. I know this isn't the point. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I want to, let me, let me come to that in a moment. It's beautiful. Livia asked a very specific, I'll say it. Livia, 
asked a very specific question about one of the elements of the actual rite itself, which we'll get to in a moment, um, and what it might signify, what it might mean. I'll talk about it in a moment when I talk about the different pieces of the rite, the actual potion making and drinking. I think Karen had her hand. Karen. So Karen's asking about the magical nature of this ritual or this rite. We didn't actually get into it, but the rite itself is, again, that there is this truth serum, as it were, this truth potion. It's a, um, a spell-inducing potion. Ma'im ha'aririm, it's bitter. Either it causes bitterness or itself is bitter. And in some way, you're pro- you always had a problem with this magical piece. Well, just for a moment, is there any other place in the Torah where somebody, somebody makes someone drink a potion as a punishment or as some kind of ceremony. Yes, Margo? So after the golden calf story, Moses grinds up the golden calf and then has the people drink this golden, this potion, this golden drink. So there's clearly a connection between this drinking and the, and the golden calf moment, which feels as though, of course, the words in the text seem to indicate that adultery, which, by the way, it doesn't use the term found in the commandment against adultery, but this moment is a moment where, in a culture that demanded fealty to a god who could become jealous, right, the man here demands fealty from a woman because he could be jealous, and then there is this drinking of the potion which is parallel. Now, for a moment, though, we're going to get into the details of this rite and how the rabbis soften it and then make it a little bit more real for us. Um, but again, back to this fundamental question, which is, how do you work within a culture to create greater transparency? Now, it could be, of course, that you know, if you don't believe in magic, then, of course, nothing would happen when you drank this potion. It could just be used psychologically to scare or to, right, like, if you were to think that if you, you would be caught and be brought Right, that kind of psychological torture, that kind of psychological terror might keep you behaviorally in place. It might act as a deterrent, maybe. Okay, back, back to, the, to this. Yeah, Jamie. Thank you, Karen. I'm going to come back to the, what goes into the potion and to the earth. Yeah. So it was brought up in the open book that the, the punishment for a guilty individual is that their thigh would sag and that their belly would distend. Um, which sounds a lot like pregnancy, right? And that was pointed out in the open book as well. Um, I think that the, the, to some degree, the text is trying to say that you would actually be unable to then ever give birth again, that it would affect that area. That's what the commentators say, that it's about this area, the sexual area and the reproductive area. I want to go metaphorical here and allegorical because that's the only way to go, I think, to, to understand some of this in any way that might be. Again, we could say, as you said, Rabbi, very beautifully, that what we're talking, what we, the deeper structure here is, and the deeper question here is, that there is a natural, that, that relationships breed suspicion. When one trusts completely and gives one trust completely, the thing that frays in a relationship is trust. And the fraying of those fibers of cohesion is, known, is suspicion. To some degree, this suspicion and this danger, of course, in a culture where patrilineality was also a core feature, right? not knowing who your children were had huge economic and financial repercussions too. Someone would claim they're your child or not. 
that you are their father, you owe them land, whatever it might be. That was a, clearly a, a, a very important piece of this too. Um, be that as it may, in, we said in the open book, and we can say this here, that if the priest is seen as a therapist or as someone, a safe space, and the precinct is seen as a holy space, that this is an invitation to work things out. Now, the way that it gets worked out is deeply problematic, but it's it, writ large, more abstractly, how to work out things in a relationship when suspicion, when trust has eroded and been compromised. How do we do that? And so the dirt on the ground of the Mishkan. The word afar appears, the word afar, dirt, appears in the Torah when describing our mortality, our humanity. Afar, the afar ha'aretz, the dust of the land. And so the Rabbeinu Bachya and Orachaim and other, others say that what goes into this potion is basically this strange water is right it's water and earth and then god's name those are the three ingredients in the portion in the potion water earth and god's name now hold off on god's name for a moment water the first instance of water in the torah is when the waters have been split the first time torah appear, water appears in torah it's hovering on the face of the depths and then it gets split and so these commentators say that the waters represent the tears of division. Water in this potion represent the tears of division. The upper waters yearning for the lower waters, all divisions where we don't feel that we're aligned. The earth, the afar, represents humility. The deep humanity, and it also experienced, he said, humility and also the pain of separation when God said to the trees in the Garden of Eden to bring forth fruit that would taste like the bark, the fruit of the tree and the tree would be one, and instead they weren't. There was the fruit of the tree and the tree itself. These separations create missing. We miss one another. And then into this potion of division, of disunity, of discord, of dissonance, we place God's holiest name. Now that already is radical. Because as the Talmud goes on to say, that peace is so great that the relationship between lovers is so important to God that God is willing to have God's own name be erased. So what would it mean to drink the waters of division, of discord, of humility and longing that have been blessed by God's holy name? It might mean, for me this morning, maybe for some of you here, to ingest the consequences of, of discord. To raise to awareness in a very, in a very profound way what are the, the deep consequences of continuing to see one another with suspicious eyes. That to, to the degree that we look at one another without trust, to the degree that trust is broken, that God's name is erased in the world. That when there is this, this sense that I don't know who you are and a sense that I, I don't feel safe with you, that lack of safety is itself an erosion of God's name.
Gesundheit. So, I want to call for the open up. I want to call for the open aliyah and all of those who, are, who feel called this morning. Obviously, feel free to stand if you're in protest of this text. God forbid that there would only be enough safety in this sanctuary for people to feel like, oh, I'm going to go allegorical or metaphorical. If this text doesn't speak to you, you can stand in protest or sit in protest. I mean, we know that the president and others are trying to keep people from kneeling or standing or kneeling in protest. Those are all absurd. You can protest anything you want. But if you feel called this morning to stand with the the inner intelligence, I think, of this text, which is that we as a culture and as a society have to make safe space for discords and harmonies, suspicions and betrayals to be aired. A kind of reconciliation process between those who say, why should I trust you? Why should I believe that your change is real? Why should I? And we're working together to find the potion of reconciliation, the potion of innocent return, of that natural state, who recognize that something is necessary, something has been disrupted, and it won't just go back to being the way it was or the way it could be without some marking of, we need to work this out. There's a deep, dark energy of suspicion and betrayal, and it exists individually, and it exists collectively. What would that look like if we said together, we're going to have the sota, or we should come up with a better name, obviously, but all of us are sotim. We are, in some way, betrayers of our, he our deeper values. When our country whores, it's also problematic, but we have to find better English, right? When our country betrays its deeper truths and runs after the market and leaves people starving on the streets, what potion needs to be given to this culture to, for them to be honest about what they've done and who they are so the truth might come to light? This is a text that says, until the truth comes to light, secrets seep. Secrets seep into the ground that we put into the potion, into the water that we drink literally and figuratively. There is nowhere to hide from secrets. The secrets that we hold kill us and they kill those around us and they kill the culture. A family that has secrets gives those secrets on to its children who drink that potion. We think, you know, if only you know, we as two parents, whatever that structure would look like, we as two parents, we're going to keep that as a secret between us. And when we're in front of the kids, we're going to have a happy face. Does that work? The kids don't drink that. They drink it. It's there. It's available. It's as if the Torah said, time out. It used to be in tribal cultures, we just kill someone if we're suspicious. No, we need a process of transparency. Now, again, problematic, but this is a portion and a potion that seeks to lift up transparency between lovers, between families, between cultures, between tribes, between and even between different ways of interpreting the Torah. So that's the open up this morning. I invite to the Torah this morning anyone who is investing time, energy, thought, desire for a process of transparency, a process of reconciliation, a process of reestablishing faith and love to come forward to the Torah for the first Aliyah.